This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we discuss the first half of Lenin's State and Revolution. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. Joining me tonight is Grant. Hi there. Donald. Hey, it's Donald from Communist League of Tampa. Patrick. It's Patrick from Red Party. And Lexi. Lexi from Red Party running this shit like the Postal Service. (laughs) So tonight we are discussing State and Revolution by Lenin. I'm not going to be moderating this one. Donald's going to take the duties on that. So I will turn things over to him. How's it going, comrades? Very excited about doing this text. I guess I was just going to start off by time talking about the, uh, the historical context, because at first, Lenin didn't really agree with the viewpoints that he espoused in this book. It was actually Bukharin and Panikuk who made the first like, real strong argument that um, the bourgeois state needs to be smashed and that the proletarian state is like a new type of state that is completely radically different from the bourgeois state. I guess Lenin accused Bukharin of being an anarchist when Bukharin first expressed his opinion. But then Lenin eventually goes back and reads all of Marx and Engels' writings on the state and then realizes, oh, wait, like Bukharin and Panikuk are actually correct and Kotsky is incorrect. I guess I was just going to start off. In the beginning of the book, he gives a definition of the state by Engels. And I just kind of wanted to see what people thought of his definition of the state and the conclusions that Lenin draws from this definition. Here's Lenin quoting Engels. The state is, therefore, by no means a power forced on society from without, just as little is it, quote, the reality of the ethical idea, unquote, quote, the image and reality of reason, unquote, as Hegel maintains. Rather, it is a product of society at a certain stage of development. It is the admission that the society has become entangled into an insoluble contradiction with itself, and it has split into irreconcilable antagonisms, which it is powerless to dispel. But in order that these antagonisms, these classes and conflicting economic interests might not consume themselves in society and fruitless struggle, it became necessary to have a power seemingly standing above society that would alleviate the conflict and keep it within the bounds of quote-unquote order. And this power, arisen out of society, but placing itself above it and alienating itself more and more from it, is the state. Yeah, that's that's the first definition of the state that um, Lenin marshals in this argument that he's making. So, like, the impression that I get is that he seems to be arguing that others are arguing that the state can act as, like, this instrument of, like, a reconciliation of class antagonisms. When Engels more seems to be arguing that he almost sort of, like, freezes class in a state, but by preserving them as they are, you know, one class will inevitably remain dominant. And thus the state acts as an instrument of class domination. Yeah, exactly. It's like the way I saw it is he's basically saying that because society is divided into classes and class antagonisms, there needs to be some kind of coercive body that's alien from the rest of society that is able to kind of integrate society. But it's still 
doing so through the oppression of one class over the other, and it's not just this neutral body, basically. So it is essentially establishing that the state is a class, it's specific to class society, and it's instrument of class oppression, basically. It's this notion of the state, the Marxian definition of the state, is what allows the idea of the abolition of the state. In German, you know, it might be Aufhebung, which is like a compound concept that either means abolition or like transcending, withering away. Anybody but anarchists think that this is a really dumb idea when you first put it out there that you want the state to go away. And Marxists, especially like after the 20th century, have really had to grapple with, I don't know, when I was rereading this text, I was kind of wincing sometimes when, you know, there was the confident predictions that the bureaucracy would fade away and that kind of thing. The Marxian theory of the state is what makes abolishing the state ever seem believable. You see him kind of re-emphasizing just how much the goal of the abolition of the state is the end goal of the Marxist project. Um, but obviously Marxists define it differently because, you know, they see the state as being this inevitable product of class antagonism. Smashing the state before the dissolution of classes is, to Marxists, pretty much pointless. Because if you smash the state, you could still have class-based social relations that would inevitably reproduce like a new state. You sort of have to untangle this sort of not in society uh, to the point that, you know, a state essentially becomes superfluous and the former institutions that constituted the state would have shifted so much in terms of their functioning that, you know, it would be something completely different. You know, it, it would be communism. And uh, Lenin does here, of course, talk about smashing the state machine, though. And I, I think that's something we're really going to have to address as well. Yeah, that's the, the cle it's definitely clear that Lenin wants. A, it's, I think he says, at first, we smash the bourgeois state, establish a proletarian state, then the proletarian state withers away. But I guess the critique would be that Lenin doesn't give clear enough an example how proletarian state is going to wither away because there's the question of bureaucracy and how you submit the bureaucracy to the interests of the working class, which is kind of McNair's argument, you know, not against state revolution, but his kind of critique of what's lacking in state and revolution. So I was wondering if anyone thought like Lenin's definition, say, might be kind of missing something, if a more nuanced definition is needed today and what that might look like. I think the McNair you're referencing there, uh, is that the weekly worker control the bureaucrats article? That's yeah, yeah. good work on the subject. Right, to be fair, it. Lenin actually sort of does like describe it, the ways in which like the state would kind of wither away, I guess. Like it would be like an increasing of democracy and the ability to like hold bureaucrats accountable in like elections and that sort of thing. Uh, election having elections at any time and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, he puts a lot of emphasis on um, the kind of measures that the Paris Commune does in part three. And so I guess when we get to that part, we can kind of go closer into how Lenin really sees the withering status, how it would work out. Because he sees it kind of basically as a, a massive democratization of political life. So I don't know. I think that what Lenin is kind of missing here is that the state is a class instrument, basically a protection racket for the ruling classes. But at the same time, it carries out certain functions in the in the division of labor and society 
that require expertise and skill sets in order to keep society running as a whole. So they're socially beneficial aspects. And these aspects of the state are kind of ignored. Well, doesn't he argue that they could basically be reduced to really simplistic, like administrative functions that pretty much anybody can do? Like he seems to be arguing that it would be possible through like proper like structuring an organization of the state to make it something that you could have like a high level of turnover in government and just replace people very easily and thus prevent that kind of, you know, bureaucratic technical specialization that puts people in government in a superior position to sort of leverage their place into, you know, more power uh, than somebody who could be, you know, fired by the society generally at will. Yeah, he he actually like talks about increasing literacy of like working class people as being like a part of that. Every cook can govern. Yeah, right. I was gonna say that Do- Lenin definitely has this idea that every cook can govern, but it also seems like there has to be a, a sense of political education. The working class has to become politically educated and politicized for this to really work, and. Well, my impression re- I got reading this is that maybe he actually like overestimates the extent to which the functions of government can be the, the technical knowledge of you know the existing state could be socialized because he's he's pointing to like the Paris Commune, but we're talking about like the administration of like one city that's under siege. Um, yeah, and he's trying to basically extrapolate Marx and Engels' analysis and find a way to generalize it which, you know, is a lot harder to do because, you know, Marx and Engels were working off of an actual like, concrete example and trying to extrapolate, you know, what was progressive there and how that might, you know, act as a sort of premonition of what the dictatorship of the proletariat might look like. But they didn't sketch out in great detail how you could generalize the, you know, rule of the Paris Commune across like a broader geographical body and with a maybe more heterogeneous composition of classes. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that the principles of the Paris Commune are what's important, but it doesn't provide a pre-made form that we can just copy. They really run into the problem of, you know, what is the state in real life? I mean, Lenin shows an awareness that, you know, there are like legitimate social functions that the state has that need to be transferred over to, like he says something like, you know, responsible social servants or something that sounds kind of liberal. And then he also shows awareness that, for instance, that, that the clergy is a kind of ideological agent of the state in a way that, you know, Althusser would pick up on and he would call like everything the state if it had an ideological uh, cash value. But in practice, the Bolsheviks really did go after the special bodies of armed men. Lenin had it better on paper than he could actually execute in terms of the special bodies of armed men. You know, the as McNair goes over, the commune state doesn't really work out, and they have to do something more conventional, especially with the spetsy, the specialists, bureaucrats, and, like, army officers that the Bolsheviks basically, like, blackmailed, threatening to kill their families and that kind of thing. They had to, like, use that their technical knowledge because those are the only people that really understood it. Uh, and that's sort of like the logic behind the revolving door today. Why does uh, someone that works in Goldman Sachs end up regulating Goldman Sachs? Well, because the guy in Goldman Sachs knows things about Goldman Sachs. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that there's aspects of a technical division of labor that people just can't pick up instantly. That it requires education and accumulation of skills 
which is premised on kind of an abolition of intellectual property. And so I think mm. what Lenin doesn't really grasp is that they're still going to have to be bureaucrats. And he grasps this as soon as the revolution happens, because the first yeah. thing that happens is the civil servants go on strike. And, well, they know how to make the, the everyday like basics of the city run. Like they not may they may not be necessary for like great political decisions like the Soviets and the party may be efficient for that, but the actual bureaucracy of running things and keeping you know basics running on time, those bureaucrats all went on strike against the revolution. And so one of the first things the Bolsheviks did was break a strike of civil servants because <laughs> essentially they were rebelling against the new government and they realized they would they would lose their privileges as special bureaucrats. This section, he kind of goes over Engels' views, and there was um, one quote by Engels that I really liked about the withering away of the state that I just wanted to share. It's um, part one, section four, the withering away of the state and violent revolution. And Lenin says, Engels' words regarding the withering away of the state are so widely known. They are so often quoted and so clearly reveal the essence of the customary adaptation of Marxism to opportunism that we must deal with them in detail. We shall quote the whole argument from which they are taken. So just as a warning, this is a long quote, but it's a good quote. <clears throat> the proletariat seizes state power and turns the means of production into state property to begin with, but thereby it abolishes itself as the proletariat, abolishes all class distinctions and class antagonisms, and abolishes also the state as state. Society thus far, operating amid class antagonisms needed to the state, that is, an organization of the particular exploiting class for the maintenance of the, its external conditions of production, and therefore, for the purpose of forcibly keeping the exploited class in the conditions of oppression that are determined by a given mode of production, slavery, serfdom, or bondage, wage labor. The state was the official representative of society as a whole, its concentration in a visible corporation. But it was only insofar that it was the state of that class which itself represented, for its own time, society as a whole. In ancient times, the state of slave-owning citizens, in the Middle Ages, the feudal nobility, in our own time, the bourgeoisie. When, at last, it becomes the real representative of the whole of society, it renders itself unnecessary. As soon as there's no longer any social class to be held in subjection, as soon as class rule under an individual struggle for existence based upon the present anarchy and production, with the collisions and excesses arising from the struggle, are removed, nothing more remains to be held in subjection, nothing necessitating a special coercive force, a state. The first act by which the state really comes forward as a representative of the whole of society, by taking possessions of the means of production and the name of society, is also its last independent act as a state. State interference in social relations becomes, in one domain after another, superfluous, then dies down of itself. The government of persons is replaced by the administration of things and by the conduct and process of production. The state is not, quote-unquote, abolished. It withers away. It gives a measure of the value of the phrase, a free people's state, both as to justifiably used for the time from an agitational point of view and its ultimate scientific insufficiency and also of the so-called anarchist demand that the state be abolished overnight. And that's from uh, Auntie Deuring. Holy yeah. shit, you really did read the whole thing. Yeah. 
I, I warned y'all that was going to be a long quote. But there's a lot to unpack there. And what he's saying is that basically the state becomes kind of the administration of society, but eventually it no longer has any like coercive functions whatsoever. Because you'll hear a lot of anarchists say that like, oh, well, we're going to abolish the state by replacing it with kind of decentralized workers' militias and participatory governments. But that still doesn't like get rid of the class antagonisms that make something like a militia necessary. And so this vision of the state being abolished, I feel, is more radical than what kind of the anarchists put forward because they really, like Engels and through Lenin, they really see like this is like we're moving towards a society where there will no longer be a need for any kind of military or police or anything. It will be a com- because the state power will simply just be the administration of things. Well, yeah, in, a, in the way that he descri- Engels describes it here, it does sound like, in a way, the state is abolished overnight, uh, as you know, as a state. But many of its functions would sort of continue, just but gradually, it's the natural metabolism of a post-capitalist society or whatever. The abolition of the state sounds like something that occurs fairly early and rapidly, but it's it, the conception is slightly inverted compared to what you know anarchists seem to argue for. Well, I think Lenin's engagement here, too, where we we sort of see that the the bourgeois state doesn't wither away. It's just put an end to. But the proletarian state, which is this radical extension of democracy, does wither away through that process of becoming superfluous. So it's interesting that smashing the state and not smashing the state simultaneously that happens there. Yeah, that's the real thing, is that the bourgeois state is sort of abolished. It's smashed. And especially in Engels' formulation, the socialist movement provokes bourgeois forces into attacking it, which sounds the clarion call for the violent overthrow of the government. So, yeah, I was going to ask, like, Lane kind of says that for the revolution to be legit, it has to be a violent revolution, and, you know, it's, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that because I think theoretically, I don't say it could happen, but theoretically a, a peaceful revolution could happen just by the socialist party becoming so powerful that the bourgeoisie just surrenders to it in a time of crisis. But nonetheless, like that's extremely unlikely. I'm not sure if he's right, but it has to be violent by necessity. If that's really one of the markers of what makes it a revolution or not. I mean, in the abstract, it sounds like one of those statements where people say, like, oh, you know, in theory, you could have capitalism without racism, yeah, which is practically it's not what's going to happen. You know, we need better theory than, you know, if, if there's a, <laughs> fair enough. No, seriously, like if there's a theory where, you know, the, the bourgeoisie is just going to hand over the property, just OK, yeah, we're going to tear up the Constitution and yada, yada. And that's I don't know like if, if there's a theory that in like in the United States, a territory like that. That that's going to happen peacefully. That's not a very good theory. I don't know. Well, Marx puts forward that idea. He says that it actually yeah. could be possible yeah. that you know socialism could be achieved through the ballot box in the United States. But I, th- I can imagine it being uneven, sort of over the course of the world. I mean, the idea that an, an international socialist revolution is never going to face violent repression, uh, exactly. if it's global, is is absurd. I, I could, however. I think we'd be essentializing the tactic of violence if we were to say that it's literally impossible for a socialist party to come to power anywhere 
in the context of a civil war or a, a, an international revolution without large-scale engagement in violence with the state. I mean, that, that can happen theoretically somewhere, well, and not necessarily unrealistically. Let's take the bourgeois revolution as an example. <clears throat> There's a couple notable violent revolutions which sets the tone and the power structure for a world order where peaceful transition to the next mode of production is possible. Yeah, I guess maybe by that point, like the sort of global civil class war would kind of be winding down. It would be kind of like the end of Schindler's List or whatever. When you just like they're supposed to shoot the Jews and he just tells them, OK, just go home. You're not doing this. This is retarded. <laughs> Get out of here. You know? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, you'd meet an Allende situation. Also, we sort of have to remember that Marx Marx was specifically talking about like um, the Netherlands and well Holland. I I don't know what it was called at the time to be honest, but he was specifically talking about the Netherlands and the United States. And you know, to bring up this example now assumes that those two governments haven't really changed. He's talking about the possibility of socialism through the ballot box in the United States sort of ignores the history that has happened since then, the ways in which American democracy or constitutionalism has become more and more undemocratic over time. Yeah, I think that's yeah. That's And that's Lenin's counter-argument. Let's take a look at what's happened to the you know military and the bureaucracies of the United Kingdom and the United States. And even at, during Marx's time, Marx just had tremendous faith in the power of a democratic, you know, in some sense, constitution. We don't have to be like left-wing communists to, to re revise that country of McCarthyism, yeah. you know. Yeah, I just want to make it clear that I'm not actually saying that I think, you know, socialism can peacefully happen through the ballot box. Like, you know, that, I mean, the history of the 20th century, I think, is pretty definitively proven. Yeah. Just how brutal and uh, and how just how bad the bourgeoisie will cling to power. I mean, look at what's happening right now. Like they would rather you know basically destroy the entire ecosystem rather than have like you know whether it's a carbon tax or you know a cap on carbon emissions and different key industries. I mean, get out of here! You fucking kidding me? Like these people would not. They can't, yeah, they can't imagine that peacefully, let alone what it would actually take. I mean, they handed power over to the fascists yeah. instead of having a peaceful transition to socialism. They took the guy who shaved his mustache to look like Charlie Chaplin and then would <laughs> scream about Jews for three hours at 10 at night. They put that guy in charge before they would actually have like a rational planned administration society. Get the fuck out of here. They're not doing it. They're not, they would never let people vote their way to fucking a society beyond capitalism. No the United States installed fascist governments, you know, throughout the world, more or less. I mean, you know, fascist in a looser sense, but you know, I don't know, the Pinochet government, you know what I mean? Can we all agree then that Lenin's pretty much right, that, like, the revolution needs violence? Yes. Yeah. Like, for sure. Specifically, for sure. even specifically in a place like uh, the United States. And, not, and you know, again, I'm not, I'm not really for an aggressive people's war, so, you know, if the NSA is... Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think any of us are going to, you know, we're arguing for a people's war type situation, but... No, it's, it's very much an Engels... I, I think Engels' formulation is... I mean, you could tell he was, like, a strategist, right? Like, Well, yeah, yeah but Engels' formulation is basically by peaceful means, if possible, by violent means, if necessary. And so his kind of strategy was to exhaust all of your peaceful means to the point where the enemy is forced to, like, make violent attack, and then you can kind of take up insurrection against them and still have the moral high ground, basically. It's like an yeah, insurrection pretty, in self-defense, basically. I'm pretty, 
I'm pretty sure Ingalls was sitting on a rocking chair cleaning his gun while he said that, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, none of us are ready to go up into the Appalachian Mountains to fight people's war yet. <laughs> yeah, yet. but Ingalls does have a. Ingalls was an insurrectionist to the end, and like the revisionists and the Social Democrats, they tried to you know say that Ingalls gave up on insurrectionism. But like in his last writings, he says like as soon as we have majority support amongst the working class and can count on the army to mutiny, we should stage an insurrection. And this is, you know, not long before he died when he said this. So this isn't a position motivated by some sort of bloodlust. I mean, a practical, sober analysis of the situation of of the world today is that the bourgeois state would repress anything that came close to seizing the means of production. So what exactly does Lenin mean, though, by the smashing of the bourgeois state? Like, what exactly would this look like in concrete? Because he says the bourgeois state needs to be smashed and needs to be superseded by the proletarian state. This is impossible without a violent revolution. And the abolition of the proletarian state of the state in general is impossible except through the process of its withering away. So, like, what is, what is necessarily the, the abolition of the bourgeois state entail, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. Well, he's talking like the Paris Commune, right? Where they basically set up like their own, like their own basically representative system. Yeah, but it was more than just a change in a representative system because they had a change in the armed forces because there was a switch of power in the general means of coercion from the National Guard to the working class. What smashing the bourgeois state basically means is not just, you know, creating a new commune state, but abolishing the standing army and the police, like ending them as institutions and also basically getting cutting off a large part of the of the corrupt state bureaucracy and you know creating a new form but i think lenin sees the he makes a very important point about the bourgeois state needs to be smashed well i mean once you once you've taken away like the entire legitimation of their authority i mean yeah it's pretty much smashed i mean in the united states you have to concentrate the power of the executive into into Congress, for example. I'm not talking about Congress as in Congress that we that we have today. The idea is that, and I guess this kind of moves into later in the piece where he talks about what he means by doing away of parliamentarism. And what he seems to mean by doing away of parliamentarism, turning the state into a working body where the legislative and executive functions are fused. Yeah, you would have something like a, a Congress that is elected through um, universal suffrage, I guess, but you would have, you know, recallable delegates and stuff. But it would, it would be a um, a working body where the executive and legislative branches are these two separate things, where you have like a president and a legislator. Like you would actually directly vote the people who are running things, essentially, rather than having this kind of separation of powers. That is basically just a democratic mirage. But well, actually- Lenin even says that the judiciary, that separation not just between the legislative and the uh, executive is important to look at, but also he quotes Marx on the civil war in France and says that the judicial functionaries lost that sham independence. Uh, they were thenceforward to be elective, responsible, and revocable. Uh, that's Marx on the Paris Commune. Uh, and so I think that's part of this working body thing, too, really instituting sort of universal election of officials and getting rid of that imaginary separation of powers that, I mean, in the United States, that's just used uh, as a pretense for the Supreme Court. It's a highly political body, and they they take on their cases in very political ways. 
I think what's interesting is how Marx comes to this conclusion about the state kind of through his experience in various revolutions like 1848 and the rise of Bonapartism and all of that, and then the Paris Commune. And it's through kind of seeing like actual revolutionary struggles. He, he comes to this position that the entire bourgeois state needs to be smashed and that you need this kind of working body type commune state system. Because if you read, say, the Communist Manifesto, it kind of assumes that he thinks of the bourgeois state almost as something that can be reformed for his own ends. By 1871, it becomes very clear to him that the bourgeois state needs to be abolished. I don't know. I'm reflecting on the McNair article, um, Control the Bureaucrats, just thinking about this and like the form of the proletarian state, the commune state, the attempt to they sort of smash the state. But what they ended up building, um, it's, the problem isn't that it's centralized, but, you know, they couldn't end that you know, technical division of labor. I think we're almost kind of getting ahead of ourselves on exactly what the bullshit yeah. failed to do, because I kind of wanted to save that for part two. And fair enough, fair enough. Just kind of bring the Soviet form into it. But um, yeah, you're right, essentially, is that this plan of solving the problem of bureaucracy never came to fruition. But I think they were aware of the problem, but they didn't have a solution that was available to them at the time, I think. He uses the Paris Commune as the model of the proletarian state. And so I was just going to ask, like, what were some of the things about the Paris Commune that made him see... It was a kind of model for the proletarian state. Wait, what section are we on? Uh, section three, like chapter three. The part where he talks about the Paris Commune. Here's a quote. All officials, without exception, elected and subjected to recall at any times, their salaries reduced to the level of ordinary working men's wages, be simple and self-evident democratic measures. Um... Capitalist culture has created large-scale production, factories, railways, the postal service, telephones, etc. And on this basis, the great majority of the functions of the old state power have become so simplified and can be reduced to such exceedingly simple operations of registration, filing, and checking that they can easily be performed by every literate person and can quite easily be performed by ordinary working men's wages. And that... These functions can and must be stripped of every shadow of privilege, of every semblance, and the official grandeur. So what I kind of got from that is it's it's very almost hopeful and it doesn't come to fruition, but it is essential, I think, is this idea that we have to end politics as a career, basically. Yeah, the political class. I mean, this is a really relevant idea to the American situation where politics is conducted by like a separate i don't know like informally like, i kind of call them lizards um you know like just a, the wants <laughs> middle management intergenerational reptilian vampires yeah yeah i don't know like i i think that's like a funny cultural myth to deal with this like the strange internalization of these kind of inhuman very instrumental norms that really marks a specific kind of culture some people call it white but i think it's it's more useful to think of it in, in, in class terms because it, it gives you the material basis of why they're, they're just, I don't know. Yeah, he says, wow. we shall reduce the role of state officials so that is simply carrying out our instructions as responsible, revocable, modestly paid, quote-unquote, foremen and accountants, of course, with the aid of technicians of all sorts, types, and degrees. This is our proletarian task. This is what we can and must start within an accomplishing the proletarian revolution. 
And by those standards, I think, you know, the proletarian revolution failed very badly in Russia because they never were able to kind of control the bureaucrats, as McNair said. Well, I'm, I'm looking, and maybe I'm looking ahead a little bit, but there's a part where he basically says, uh, I'll, just, I'll just read this, quote, it is still necessary to suppress the bourgeoisie and crush their resistance. This was particularly true for the commune, and one of the reasons for its defeat was that it did not do this with sufficient determination. The organ of suppression, however, is here the majority of the population and not a minority, as is always the case under slavery, serfdom, and wage slavery. And since the majority of people itself suppresses its oppressors, a special force for suppression is no longer necessary, end quote. Um, and that might be that might be the key, actually, right there, is that you know, without this kind of specialized instrument for, you know, beating people down, it's that can be monopolized by a smaller force. You know, the sort of repressive character of the state doesn't happen anymore. And in Russia, you had a workers' government, but unfortunately the working class is the minority of the country. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's that's the problem, is they had a Paris commune like situation basically in the cities. But essentially, the, they were overwhelmed by the peasantry. And Lenin realized they had to win over the peasantry, whereas the Paris Commune just let the peasantry swamp them and kill them. Whereas Lenin, on the other hand, like realized we have to somehow like make an alliance with the peasants. And yeah, it didn't work so well. Yeah, we all know we can go on and on about how that worked out. <laughs> well, I mean, we have to we have to answer for that because we care about democracy as part of, you know, socialism and we recognize that the, you know, proletariat proper is kind of small in comparison to like I don't in comparison to the majority you would need to like carry out democratic like communist politics. Yeah, like this is yeah. this is a real issue, and like a, a a total like class standpoint, proletarian identity kind of thing doesn't solve this. Yeah, well, I mean, I think like the the size of the proletariat when you include surplus labor army or whatever, you, when you include them is large enough to have like a democratic majority. Yeah, I mean the the proletariat in modern industrialized capitalist nations is a majority population, I think, at this point. The petty bourgeois is pretty big, and I think a lot of leftists kind of underestimate how big the petty bourgeois is and how much of a problem they are. But I, th I think we do have a proletarian majority, at least in the most advanced capitalist countries. Yeah, I personally believe that the um, middle class is sort of being proletarianized at this point. Starts going on against uh, federalism, which I thought was interesting. And he had, has an interesting definition of centralism, which I like. He says, now, if the proletariat and the poor peasants take state power into their own hands, organize themselves quite freely in communes, and unite the action of all the communes in striking at capital and crushing the resistance of the capitalist, as in transferring the privately owned railways, factories, land, and so on, to the entire nation, to the whole of society. Won't that be centralism? Won't that be the most consistent democratic centralism and moreover proletarian centralism? Bernstein simply cannot conceive of the possibility of voluntary centralism, of all the voluntary amalgamations of the communes into a nation, of the voluntary fusion of the proletarian communes. For the purpose 
of the strong bourgeois role and the bourgeois state machine. Like all Philistines, Bernstein pictures centralism as something which can be imposed and maintained solely from above and solely by the bureaucracy and the military clique. And so I, don't know, I just was wondering what people's thoughts were on that kind of comment on centralism. Especially kind of- relevant, considering the disenchantment with Marxian politics, Marxian theory of the state. Um, just to like quote a little later down, uh, only those who are imbued with the Philistine quote, superstitious belief, quote, in the state can mistake the destruction of the bourgeois state machine for the destruction of centralism. Um, so implying that proletarian institutions may have that classical problem of there being a broader agency that acts with a broader legitimacy and may decide smaller matters in a way that isn't exactly how us on the ground always want it to be. That level of alienation is intrinsic to the state. Um, and, and I think it's kind of intrinsic to society in a way that you're going to have like centralized authorities that have administrative functions that you're going to be separated from. I don't think that they're ever going to get this completely unmediated society that the communizers kind of. I don't know, man. Hive mind, dude. We get AIs and we get like chips in our brains and stuff, dude. Outside of sci-fi scenarios, then yeah, I, I can't see it happening. It's not really desirable to me. I can just see, yeah, I can see better mediations and a better way of doing it being possible, but I just can't imagine this society where there is no type of administration or centralism or whatever. I'm not, I mean, I'm not up for Jungian communism myself. I mean, if we just shoot all the people with who wear glasses, we can do this, guys. <laughs> we can do this. You gotta just get rid of everyone who's not in tune with nature because, you know, we're nerds and intellectuals. Then we can have a true unmedi- like an unmediated relation to nature, man. Yeah, anyone who's insufficiently crunchy, you know. It's going to be that song, uh, California Uber Alice. I think Lenin's claims on centralism are interesting because he's not arguing against self-government of localities. He's just saying that it has to be done within the context of a greater centralized power. And he's really um, kind of ranting against Proudhon. He says, to confuse Marx's views on the destruction of state power, a parasitic extriance with Proudhon's federalism is positively monstrous. But it is no accident, for it never occurs the opportunist that Marx does not speak here at all about federalism as opposed to centralism, but about smashing all bourgeois state machine which exists in all bourgeois countries. So I think there's an interesting kind of point here that centralism does not necessarily define the state. And a lot of anarchists seem to make this mistake where the state equals any kind of centralized administration. And I think that's just utter dog shit. Well, you know, it's funny. It's not just anarchists. I mean, I think that's one of the predominant concepts for most ideas of the state, liberal state theory, you know, conservative, whatever state theory, even a lot of Marxists. We've seen sort of prefiguratively what it looks like on the left when you try to decentralize that decision making entirely and and to sort of be suspicious of organizations in the way that some are suspicious of any organization. And rather than sort of giving the people, so to speak, 
uh, some sort of greater sense of control over their, their lives or the movement or what have you. It just puts activists in charge. Cliques of activists get to make these decisions. And I think that a sort of equivalent carries over to the proletarian state when we're theorizing about that. Uh, you can't have this pure localism where we've just instituted, instituted fiefdoms, basically. Yeah, like I read a memoir of the Cultural Revolution, and it was kind of like that. Like the local party members kind of treated like their local municipalities as like little fiefdoms that they could control. And like Mao, he was like trying to decentralize power to the local um, like kind of municipalities. What it ended up doing was just like making like little fiefdoms where every little party bureaucrat was its own tyranny, basically. And so... I think, you know, that's decentralization is way too simplistic of a solution to the problem. I think it doesn't really understand what the problem is, a technical division of labor and society at its core. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and also you have like these massive industries that would need to be run under the dictatorship of the proletariat, like just like the agricultural industries and that sort of thing that would need a high level of centralization in order to run properly. And Or, or we can all starve non-hierarchically. Oh, that's true. That's true. You know what? I don't feel like tending to the nuclear reactors that we're going to need to generate enough energy to avoid – melting the whole planet. Uh, I don't feel like tending to that today. I mean, being asked to do so is a form of oppression when you think about it. Yeah, basically Stalin. Which, which you know, not to go too far, of course there are places where where something an anarchist could agree to make sense. Um, a certain kind of decentralization is part of centralization, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, that's like the Foucauldian or Foucauldian, whatever, critique of decentralization. And, you know, the thing that I like about Foucault is that he presents all these situations where autonomy, you know, supposed freedom recreates these power structures because they're deeply internalized. Decentralization ends up exercising power in the way that authorities want it to be exercised anyway. Sort of a practical example of this is usually the reactionary call for states' rights in the United States of America. Like, usually that that rallying cry is used to defend reactionary positions such as uh, slavery and Jim Crow. I mean, could we po- even potentially break up what is de facto segregation in the United States without some kind of central organization mediating policy across a large area? I don't I don't think that's possible. Yeah, exactly. We, we of yeah. course, want to break up de facto segregation. So that I asks- think the Civil War answers your question. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was going to say, like, we have to have, like, a Civil War or something. You know? Well, yeah, I think that's what's interesting about the Civil War, though, is until the U.S. Civil War, like, all Democratic kind of thinkers saw freedom as autonomy from the government and distance from the government, whereas after the Civil War, you kind of get this idea where the state can be used to actually guarantee people's freedoms and be used as an instrument to break down oppressive things that are, um, you know, enemies of freedom, I guess, to use a vague concept. Yeah, you definitely see a shift in that ideology after the U.S. Civil War. And then after that, you end up getting things like the New Deal and the Economic Bill of Rights and stuff. But uh, I think it's, uh, it's interesting just how the right kind of makes this weird 
idea of freedom based on independence from the state and isolation from the state, basically, which is basically idiocy, not being involved in politics and the running of things at, on a large scale. I just want to say I think it's really good that we're reading this, um, especially right now, when it's um, it's so important important for us to to get into the mind of Steve Bannon and figure out you know what his plans are for America and how he's going to turn this country into uh, Russia. So, yeah, we should get liberals to read Lenin because Steve Bannon. Uh, be like, you want to see what's in the mind of Steve Bannon, Trump's, you know, <laughs> leader. Read he Steve can't wait Bannon. to abolish the police force. <laughs> yeah, we, we we need to send a, we need to send a copy of this to Rachel Maddow and have her go like with what Glenn Beck did with uh, the coming insurrection. That's yeah. how we popularize it. That's perfect. That's how, yeah. Rachel Maddow she, probably Trojan horse. College. Uh, yeah, I, I doubt it. No, come on. You don't think so? I mean, she, I don't know. She probably read, she probably so. read, she probably read some Pomo trash. I'm pretty well, sure that people like her are basically educated through, like, watching reruns of The West Wing or something like that. Or whatever the equivalent of that was during college. Her, yeah, her I see her as more derived from the sort of State Department intern class that we uh, that we would have to abolish by controlling the bureaucrats in the United States. Yeah, but you think yeah. those people don't go to communist orgies? Like, like really? Like, I think that they're. I think, some, I think they have infowars.com. <laughs> I think that they have. Nah, I think, they're in our milieu. I was going to say the liberal elite does have some knowledge of communism. They do have, they've at least read the manifesto and maybe stay in revolution and a little bit of, you know, the basic. I, I, until now, I haven't read State and Revolution. These people haven't read State and Revolution. Come on. No, I, I mean, mean in a lot of conservative college, liberals. Like what we were talking about though before though, a lot of a lot of the sort of older conservative thinkers who did Soviet studies have a bit more of a grasp on this sort of thing than your average BuzzFeed liberal. Yeah, yeah. that's the yeah. thing. Like you get like neo-reactionary types who actually like read Adorno and that sort of thing. So yeah, they 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 have a better grasp on what communism or Marxism as a whole is than your average liberal. I mean, in most college curriculums, if you study any kind of political science or European history, you probably come across this text, to be honest. Like, either this or something by Lenin. You're going to come across Lenin if you study political science. If you study political science, if you study sociology, you're going to hear Marxism diluted into something called conflict theory. And that, you know, I think that that sort of easily dismissible uh, ideology is something that a lot of liberals look at Marxism as, as this sort of conflict theory of sociological relations. And that almost reminds me of the beginning of this text, where as Lenin is trying to save Marx from these distorters, uh, so do we have these distorters in the academy teaching the liberal class, the liberal State Department intern class, some distortion of Marxism? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I was getting at. Is I wouldn't be shocked if Rachel Maddow has been taught some weird distortion of Lenin and the halls of academia. I'm just thinking, you know, like queer academia, even the, in the more bourgeois like settings, like has this sense that we're the heirs of something radical. Like, you know, Sylvia Rivera, she lived on the edge. So no matter how much money and well, property I have, I mean, I'm that's... kind of like her. I think that's more like queer theory in 
the people in the humanities who tend to be like false edgy radical types like let's be honest they they're posturing 90% of the time yeah, when they try to talk radical decades. shit that's like it's like a long crunchy tradition in the pacific northwest and in like you know burlington vermont and stuff it is real it does exist and it's it's pretty awful but it's it's where a lot of people have any exposure to this. And, you know, you have to ask yourself sometimes, is it worse to be obscured or to be misrepresented? We talk about uh, Marx more in English departments today than in economics departments. Or any department that he actually would have worked in. <laughs> yeah, that's, un- that's very unfortunate. I don't know. My takeaway from all this is always just, we need an intellectual culture that's autonomous. Outside of academia. Exactly. Yes. It needs to be autonomous from academia. Even if it uses the skills of academics, it still needs to be independent. Like podcasts. Yeah, it better not come up with its own alternative knowledge method. Like it better use the standards of knowledge developed by yeah. these institutions. Yeah, we basically need like think tanks sort of, I guess. We can't be distilling things, though. I think some people look at the problems of academia and turn to anti-intellectualism, and, and that is that is a dangerous thing. I, I, I think that we can see that there is the possibility for self-educated and proletarian intellectualism. Oh, yeah, and I mean, our whole project is dependent on the ability of that to happen. But, yeah, it's it's the critique of academia all too often just becomes a critique of intellectualism. And it always just is a rationalization for aimless activism. Well, yeah, often, the problem with academia times. isn't that they read too much. Like the problem is that you know they're directed towards ends that are either serve the bourgeois or completely pointless. We're given conservative populist solutions of sort of distilling content rather than trying to get people the resources to be able to apprehend these texts. I mean, it may sound like anti-intellectualism to just sort of point out that there are obscurest tendencies within academia. Like, these people basically have to, like, reinterpret, like, older texts in order to have, like, a career, like, in sort of a newer way-ish. And usually that involves, like, distorting the fuck out of it as much as possible in order to keep their careers going. So, yeah. That's absolutely the case, too. No doubt. Derrida, like Derrida, like consciously defended the practice of like a purposeful misinterpretation. I don't know. You do get kind of like wing nuts who are like, this is the true interpretation of this text. You know, anyone who disagrees with me about the interpretation of his text is a revisionist liar. But on the other hand, like you can't completely separate the motives of the author from the text itself. And that's I think that's kind of what state and revolution is is good about is that it really shows Lenin's motives are proletarian self-emancipation and that he is, you know, he isn't a faker basically. Cause a lot of anarchists act like this is basically Lenin, like trying to trick the anarchists and supporting him by pretending to be a libertarian. But really this text is just a very clear explanation of what Marx and Engels thought about the state. And it's consistent with Lenin's other writings. Yeah. Yeah, but the check is not in it. That is true. But I mean, you know, like Lenin was forced to reckon with reality. And this beautiful theory had to was, you know, hit against the grindstone of 
you know, post-Tsarist Russia. The reason yeah. that this scares yeah. people is because people think of it as the kind of naivete that leads to disaster. I'm going to be, like, frank here. I think that a centralization, sort of like executization of power, is sort of needed in the initial stage of, like, the dictatorship of the proletariat, just, like, to get rid of class enemies. Like, you see this in, like, bourgeois dictatorships. Like, during the Civil War, Lincoln Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and that sort of thing. There needs to be sort of a liquidation of the bourgeoisie, and the only way to do that is to, like, hand over power to, like, an executivized government. You know, I, I understand what you're saying, like a dictura, basically, like a a period where constitutional rule of law is suspended and basically it's a state of exception where there's civil war, basically. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think in the initial period of the revolution, when we have to fight against, you know, the bourgeois counter-revolution, that will be true. But the th- interesting thing about the U.S. civil war is that they were still able to maintain democratic norms of government while fighting the war. And it is true, yes, Lenin, I mean, Lincoln, (laughs) Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. He did censor certain pro-Confederate newspapers of the North. But I think that he was very selective and careful about how he did this. And I think we could actually learn from that. Censoring Confederates who want to destroy your government, I think, is is a far different thing than having a a general policy of censorship and and Mm. having a general policy of censorship is dangerous to the dictatorship of the proletariat that's it for this week Uh, next week should be another current events episode Uh, if you want to write to us you can send us an email at swampsidechats at gmail.com and if you'd like to support the show you can leave us a good review on iTunes if Indeed, that's what you use. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. Jake, what the fuck does that mean?